My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Man, I've got three rows right here. It's like I spit when I preach or something. Um, maybe I'll stand on this chair just to be closer. I won't. All right. Um, I want to go back in time, about 30 minutes. All right, as the band plays their opening instrumental, I want us to imagine a set of curtains opening to the beginning of a drama. Um, If you'd like, close your eyes. Actually, please do close your eyes. Um, Please close your eyes and imagine that if if everything and everyone up on this stage were to disappear, um, or if that brick facade were to crumble, what's going on in the background? Um, What is going on spiritually in the spiritual realm when the saints gather together on Sundays? Close your eyes and imagine. God Almighty calls us to worship. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we are immersed in a sea of divine glory and we breathe out praise. But there's this gaping darkness and we're left in despair. And from that place, from that place of darkness, a man steps forward and his voice is like a trumpet, his robe like a storm cloud, his eyes are burning like fire, his hair is white as snow, and from his tongue proceeds a sword. His very presence is humbling and we cannot rightly stand before him. We are summoned to sit, someone to bow before him. And from that place, that trumpeting voice assures us, don't be afraid. You're safe with me. And so we stand again. We stand with humble confidence and with fearful hope. We begin to sing again, but this room cannot contain the glory. The roof is ripped away and we are summoned into the heavenlies and we stand awestruck in the threshold of a throne room. We've joined a countless throng of men and women, all clothed in white, singing with one voice alongside angelic creatures we cannot begin to describe. Then a scroll is opened. A decree is cast down from the throne from the king himself. The decree is carried by bolts of lightning and booms of thunder. The earth quakes and everything we see begins to undergo change. And we realize that we are caught up in the midst of a war, a deadly and bloody battle. But upon closer inspection, this war looks more like a harvest. It looks like a victorious procession. Millions of people, battle-scarred, wounded, some even beheaded and torn to pieces, march through the streets, dancing and singing with joy in the midst of their suffering. The sky is raining down bread and wine. The masses are satiated and satisfied. And one last time, that trumpeting voice speaks. I'm blessing you to be a blessing. Go to your homes, go to your jobs, be my witnesses, and dance for joy as those who will soon inherit glory. Go in peace. 
If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, I think this is the drama of a Sunday gathering. At Sojourn, we, we think very highly of the neighborhood parish. We want you in one. Um, but the neighborhood parish, we're willing to admit, has limitations. It simply cannot provide all that you need for life and godliness. The Sunday gathering is also indispensable to the Christian life and to the health of our church. All right, so today we're going to discuss Sojourn's liturgy. And a a liturgy is simply um, the structure or form according to which corporate worship is ordered. A liturgy is a practice that shapes what we love. A liturgy is a practice that shapes what we love. And every church has one. Um, Some liturgies are formal, some liturgies are informal, and most liturgies are somewhere in between. Sojourn is somewhere in between. The word liturgy comes from a couple Greek words, meaning the public work of the people. But I think we we need to be a bit careful with that definition. Um, we We do respond with words and actions throughout our time together. We just did that together. Um... There is work for us to do. But our liturgy is not fundamentally about our work. Our liturgy is fundamentally about the work of God. And that's the, that's the main idea I want to communicate today. Our liturgy is fundamentally about the work of God. On Sundays, God welcomes his children into his house. He serves us, and he forgives us, and he instructs us, and he feeds us, and then he sends us back out. God ministers to us through us. And the entire liturgy liturgy tells the story of God's action and our response. All right, so let's let's take a look at each piece of our liturgy one by one. First of all, I want to draw our attention to the phrase, let us draw near in verse 22. Uh, In the original Greek, this was a well-known expression of, of corporate worship. It was a liturgical expression. So the author of Hebrews is calling us into the sanctuary, by, into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The church is an ecclesia, which means called out assembly. So every Sunday, we, we open up our Sunday gathering with a call to worship. God is saying to us, draw near to me. And we're saying to one another, let us draw near to God. And so when we gather for corporate worship on Sunday, it's because God has summoned us. We don't gather because it's what Christians have always done or because Sundays work best for our schedules. We gather because God has summoned us and he wants to renew his promises to us and to give us a taste of heaven. In today's world, there are many reasons why we might neglect this corporate assembly. Here are a few. Weekend trips to visit friends and family. Football. Whether yesterday or today, football. Our kids' activities and sporting events. The prevalence of podcasts. Or if we're honest, preaching and music that's below average. Don't laugh. Don't laugh at that. Um, I by no means want to suggest that weekend trips are inherently sinful or you should suppress your child's gifts 
um, or that we should be given license to preach terrible, boring sermons. Not at all. I simply want to state the facts. Those are some real reasons why in our culture we might neglect to meet together. And apparently there were real reasons in the early church too. Why else would the author of Hebrews say, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, in verse 25. Clearly some people were neglecting to gather. All right. After the call to worship, we sing together. God's people have always sung together. It dates back to Israel's earliest days. So when we read in verse 24, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, surely singing should be at the top of our list. But to the world outside, it, it must seem strange. It must seem strange, right? So why is worship through song a universal practice among God's people? Christian worship is holy war. But our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 We don't wage war with swords and chariots or guns and bombs. We wage war with our prayer. Especially the prayers that we sing together. And several times over the past three weeks, we've discussed our vocation as priests. You may have read um, from the parish primer about our vocation as priests. And now, before Jesus, who is the great priest, mentioned in verse 21, only a select few men were permitted to serve as priests. These men served God by ministering in the temple and offering animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. They were spiritual warriors in that sense. In fact, the, the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, you may be familiar with that, It's describing the dress of the high priest. So the priests were spiritual warriors, and part of their job was to sing. They offered their breath as a sacrifice. Through song, they were living sacrifices, an army commissioned to sing before the Lord on behalf of the world. And so as priests, singing is part of our job description. Our songs rise into God's presence as a fragrant incense offering. With one voice, we praise God, we encourage one another, and we cry out for justice. And God hears us, and the world changes. A quick side note. Um, When we worship together, we really do offer our breath and our bodies as living sacrifices. So it's absolutely appropriate to give, to give thought to our posture in worship. We worship not just with our voices, but with our whole bodies. And so if we, if we rely only on words to shape what we love, we elevate the mind over the body. And Christians are not supposed to do that. The Bible does not allow us to do that. The posture we take in worship also shapes what we love. We have to teach our bodies, not just our minds. And the Bible teaches us to to lift our hands when we worship. 
That's also why we sit and kneel for our time of confession. Um, as we've already discussed, we've been summoned into God's presence, but, but coming into God's presence is potentially dangerous for sinners. And for that very reason, um, in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus was essentially written. It was essentially written um, so that the people of Israel could know how to approach God in his prescribed manner. Right? So, near the beginning of our time on Sundays, we set aside time for confession and repentance. Look back at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is a true heart? A true heart is a heart that is repentant. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So a true heart is a heart that sees the truth. We are sinners in need of grace. God calls his people to repent of their sins throughout the scriptures. It's fundamentally a call to humble ourselves and to turn from our sin and to return to God. And our response to this call for repentance is prayer. We pray privately, we pray corporately in unison. And then God's response to our response is to comfort us as his beloved children. This is the portion of our liturgy, call, liturgy called the absolution or the assurance of pardon. We have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our text says. And this by the blood of Christ. This blood sprinkling, the imagery there, it's foreign to us, but refers back to the process of killing animals to atone for sin. So Jesus was the lamb that was slain for us, and his blood is sprinkled upon us to atone for our sins. Because of Jesus, we who repent are pardoned. Because of Jesus, we who repent are pardoned. And this, in and of itself, is another call from God. Believe that you are forgiven. Really believe it. When J.J. says to us, to those who look to Jesus for salvation, forgiveness of sins is given in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I want you to hear that as a word from God himself, and I want you to trust him. Whether or not you feel forgiven is irrelevant. If you repent, God declares you forgiven, and that means you're forgiven. You no longer have the right to cling to your guilt in that moment. We really are sinners, but we really can be assured of our pardon. Again, as it says in verse 22, we really can have true hearts in full assurance of faith. And from this place of pardon, we sing a song of thanksgiving and we pass the peace of Christ to one another. Now this this isn't simply a turn and greet your neighbor moment. Um, it's not just a, a bit we stuck in there so that the band could sneak away. Um, this is an intentional part of our gathering. We have been forgiven, and we have peace with God, and we are called to share that peace with other people. And so even this element is intentional. It trains us to trust in God's forgiveness and then to reach out to our neighbor. 
And from there, we move into a time of instruction, the sermon. What's happening during the sermon? In part, this weekly instruction, uh, this gospel proclamation, it helps us to obey verse 23, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. But too often, I think we view preaching um, as an event in which God is the topic. It's a lecture about God. Sermons are for data processing. But historically, the church has viewed preaching as an event in which God is both the topic and the actor. In other words, preaching is not simply a pastor talking about God. Preaching is God talking. Preaching is God speaking through human beings to human beings. That's a dangerous thing to say standing in the pulpit, right? I say it with trepidation. It does not mean that my sermon today should be stapled to the back of your Bible. Right? We're, we're not cult leaders here at Sojourn. Sermons are to be preached with authority, but sermons are ultimately subject to the authority of Scripture. And as we say every week, we go to the scriptures because it's there that we see the person and work of Jesus most clearly revealed. And so preaching is powerful when Christ is preached. Preaching is uniquely powerful when sermons grow up and out of the Bible to exalt and honor Jesus. Let me say this. Even if you don't always feel the power of preaching, preaching is powerful. We may not feel God's presence in every instance, and we may not experience his grace in the same measure every week. But just like the assurance of pardon, the power is in God's objective promise, not in your subjective experience. The promise is objective. Your experience is not. Do we have this sort of confidence in the power of the Spirit working through Ordinary Sundays, ordinary songs, ordinary sermons, ordinary sacraments. Do we trust that over the course of decades, these ordinary things accomplish something extraordinary in us to grow us into the full stature of Christ? There are no, there are no eight-minute abs in the Christian life. There just aren't. It's not supposed to come easy. Is it okay for a Sunday gathering to be ordinary? Is it it okay that last week you came, man, that was the best sermon I've ever heard, and this week you come, meh, I don't know. Is that okay? Do we have faith to see what God is doing through ordinary Sundays? One more thought on sermons. The, the purpose of preaching and the preacher's goal must be to stir up faith and to lead us into deeper communion with God. And that's true of the Christian and the non-Christian. And within our liturgy, that means the sermon should lead God's people to God's table. The Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. A sermon without the Lord's Supper is like coming together with your family to talk about Thanksgiving dinner 
turkey, dressing, the works. And then leaving without partaking of that dinner with your family. Having heard the word preached, we see the word put on display in what we call sacraments. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are they're meant to dramatize spiritual realities in physical form. The human body is more than just a container for your brain. We are body and soul beings, and our liturgy, again, is designed to teach our bodies, not just our minds. We hear the word through the ear, and we partake of the word through the eyes and nose and hands and mouth. That's what a sacrament does for us. So what's happening when we come to the table? First of all, God knows that our faith needs strengthening on a weekly basis. So he confirms his promises to us through these sacraments. There's a singer-songwriter, actually he's from Houston, named David Ramirez. And in one of his songs, he sings, Give me something to hold on to. I need something I can fit in my hand. Because I'm tired of leaving the things I believe in to chance. I want some proof. Give me something to hold on to. But long before David Ramirez... God gave us something to hold on to. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's a physical demonstration of a spiritual reality and it helps us to keep on believing. When we come to the table, we've hopefully just heard the word of God faithfully preached. We've been reminded what God has done for us and what has God done for us? He's given us rest. It's that simple. As we, as we learned in the evangelism seminar this, this summer, we lost it all. Jesus did it all. We get it all. Jesus has blessed us eternally and free of charge. In fact, the book of Ephesians tells us that we've been raised up with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. We don't stand with him in the heavenly places. We sit with him. Sitting is a restful posture. We rest in his presence. He sits on the throne and we sit beside him, reigning with him. Throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New, God's people are invited to God's table. So as those seated with God in the heavenly places, Eating and drinking at the Lord's table acknowledges the rest we've been given in Christ. Communion is meant to be a feast of joy and thanksgiving, not just, not just a silent, solemn, introspective snack where we give no thought to the people around us. This is a celebration meal. The Lord's Supper is one of the greatest privileges on earth. The Lord's Supper is one of the greatest privileges on earth. And we should partake of it accordingly with joy and celebration and thanksgiving. Side note, I'd like for us to try something out this week. Uh, when, you, when you come to the table this morning to receive the elements, um, I want you to go back to your seat and sit down before you actually eat the elements. Um, taking this passive, restful posture reminds us that we are recipients of grace. 
We don't contribute to what we're receiving at the table. Okay? And so the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the rest and reign we enjoy in communion with Jesus. And when we partake of it by faith, something deeply spiritual takes place. Jesus really does commune with us. The church is, the Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. And so when when she partakes of communion, she receives the body of Christ into her own body. Are you tracking with me? We are a bride, and every Sunday we enjoy the body of our bridegroom. I don't, I don't want to be graphic with that, but please don't try to tell me that that's merely symbolic. There is something deep and beautiful taking place when we come to the Lord's table in faith. A communion much like the communion between husband and wife. We are nourished by this communion meal. Even though it's small, We are nourished by it, by faith. And having been nourished, God sends us back into the world to obey his instructions for us. And that brings us to the benediction. The word benediction means a word of blessing. And so it's more than just a dismissal, you know, you're free to go. The benediction um, is a word from God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And now go back to your homes and neighborhoods and jobs, God says, and be my witnesses in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. And that's our liturgy. Um, and it's a lot of information, right? So, so what's the big picture? Each and every Sunday, we rehearse the gospel drama together. Each and every Sunday gathering is a microcosm of the life we're living together. We are summoned in the name of Jesus. We forsake our sins through corporate confession. We are once again assured of our place in the kingdom. We hear the word proclaimed. We fellowship at the table. and We're sent back out to do it again. The purpose of this Sunday gathering is covenant renewal. And that just means that God is reaffirming his promises to us. He accomplishes this by calling us together and then serving us. God serves us here. And he desires to do it every seven days. And that has been his pattern for thousands and thousands of years. We absolutely must prioritize this time. Parents, would it not be a source of great comfort and pride if your children actually looked forward to Sundays or looked forward to your weekly parish gathering? Absolutely, it would. So, will they learn that from you? Will your children learn to value gathering with the saints by watching you value gathering with the saints? 
it would be to their eternal benefit to observe you prioritizing this day, arriving on time, serving on a volunteer team, welcoming the newcomer, engaging with the liturgy, singing songs of praise, confessing your sin, listening to the sermon actively, partaking of the table joyfully, giving of your finances generously. And if you don't have children, please do it for mine. Or do it for that non-Christian coworker you've been meaning to invite. Let's treat this gathering we want let's treat this gathering how we want our children to treat this gathering. Let's treat this gathering the way we want our neighbors to treat this gathering. This is a time where we come to meet with God alongside brothers and sisters in the faith. And so we cannot neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. The Sunday gathering has the power to change the world. The power to change the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, liturgy teaches us to love what we've been created to love. In other words, liturgy changes people. And when people change, cultures change. And when cultures change, the world changes. And so either that's a gross overstatement or we actually believe God meets us here. If God really does commune with us uniquely on Sundays, if he does commune with millions of people in thousands of churches in hundreds of countries throughout the world, the world is changing as we speak. Sometimes that change is dramatic. Sometimes that change is too small to perceive. But even when the world outside feels like it's falling down around us, that change is nonetheless taking place. So let's, let's believe that. Let's trust that. And let's value this time accordingly. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your church. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to call you Father and to have adopted brothers and sisters in your family. It's an honor and a privilege to come into this place and to, meet, to be met here um, by you. We pray that you would um, make us into the type of people who, who know how to sap the Sunday gathering and the liturgy for all it's worth. I pray that you would send us out here today encouraged and nourished. In Jesus' name, amen.